people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yep, Joey Watson here for another installment of this show, Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get the pleasure of sitting down with one guest and hearing some of the records that have offered the backdrop to their life. Today, I've got Dr. Deborah Keenan. Deborah is a psychologist and academic with two PhDs, exploring the subjects of human rights and peace studies. She's also a multimedia artist, with work currently showing at the Big Anxiety Festival being put on at the University of New South Wales. Deborah also has dwarfism, and her experience of being othered, sometimes with extreme cruelty, looms large in her work. It also gives her a unique perspective of humanity at its best and at its worst. So, here to unpack her life, Deborah, a very warm welcome to Out of the Box today. Thank you, Joey, and thank you to FBI for having me. We're very lucky to have you. I, I thought I'd um, start with, since your your profile has kind of risen through your art and your your research recently you've been asked to do a a lot more media perhaps um there's a lot about you online now i'm i'm wondering what what have been the the best and the worst experiences you've had in media and 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 in that from that perspective in a kind of if you could kind of teach me what 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 are what are the best and the worst things to do when when interviewing someone with dwarfism or with disability broadly well that's actually a really good question because as you said i've had uh uh a lot of uh exposure of late and it's interesting that uh people Say, so, you know, I get asked, what can I ask? What can't I ask? And uh, the for me, the thing around disability and certainly with dwarfism is that we stand out in the crowd, you know, and there is a, a long social history and ideas around dwarfism which haven't been good for people with the condition. And... So for me, it's really important, as as you said, my academic history is in human rights and uh, peace and development, and it's a matter of breaking down barriers so that people drop their fear and anxiety of difference uh, so that people with this condition have an easier life, you know. Um, so... A lot of that questioning about trying to understand difference is, uh, as I said, breaking down the barriers, but it's asking difficult questions because there, there is the unknown. And sometimes you actually have to answer difficult questions. But as I have said to people in the past, it's about the way the question is asked and the way the topic is approached that matters. So you can talk about really difficult issues, but you can approach them respectfully and and tactfully. And and that is actually what matters, how uh, a, a subject is approached. Because if we don't talk about the difficult issues uh, and the unknown, then uh, the the fear and the anxiety and and uh, the stereotypes remain. Is that tiresome for you, yeah. having to take on that that mantle? I suppose there would be harder parts um, of having a particular disability than than that. But is that something that you see? Do you find well, pride in, or well, let's put it this way, uh, Joey. It would be. Wonderful when we get to the day where nobody has to do this. That would be great. We're not there yet. And for me, um, as as you may be aware, and my my and that my daughter has the condition as well. And so for me, it is very much my responsibility as a parent to 
make her life easier. And so for me, it's it's important that I do what I can to make her life easier. And in doing this sort of stuff, if I make her life easier and in the process I make the life of other people easier, then I've done my job, <laughs> you know. Was, was, yes. was that a, a mantle of responsibility that you had to come to terms with over the course of your life or was it a realisation that maybe hit you early on? It hit me early on. How so? Well, I I think in, in the sense of um, wanting to answer the simple question of why. Why were people like me, but not just me, uh, anybody with difference from the mainstream, why were sometimes we were treated in a manner that is totally inappropriate for no, no other reason, seemingly, than we look different? And it, it just strikes me as um, such unnecessary angst, unnecessary uh, uh, ill-treatment of people, unnecessary, uh, yeah, ill-feeling when basically it's a matter of all these people want to do is live their lives and how in in living their lives, how, how is that hurting you? Mm. We mentioned a difficult line of questioning. I suppose we should start at the beginning with kind of unpacking and exploring this. Did, did, your, did your parents know that you were no. going to be small? Was there any no. expectation around it? No. No, uh, none at all, because uh, my parents uh, were average height, as I have um, four brothers. I was the youngest in the family and my four brothers are of average height. So uh, the majority of people with dwarfism are actually born to average sized parents. Um, It's, you know, you hear the the numbers uh, differently as to the, the, you know, one in every 100,000 births or one in every 50,000 births. But Regardless, it is actually a very common phenomenon. And the bottom line is the majority of people with dwarfism are born to average-sized parents. And the thing is, um, people with dwarfism can have average children, can have average-sized children, because everyone with dwarfism carries an average gene the, the dwarf gene is dominant. And so we all carry, a, a, for want of a better term, a normal gene. So two people with dwarfism, if they have children, they can have children who are average height. Mm. So in some way, uh, it was then a complete shock to your parents. Did, mm. did, uh, did they deal with that well? They did. Um, I would say the medical community didn't. How, how, they did. In what way? Well, what what happened was my my mother had me, and back then we are talking um, uh, many more years than I get <laughs> to admit on public radio. <laughs> um, back then, um, women who bore children stayed in the hospital longer than what they do now. And she was in the hospital. I was diagnosed at three days of age, which was very young uh, back then. It's it's not unknown for children with dwarfism born to average parents to not be diagnosed for months after birth. And uh, I was diagnosed at three days old. And the doctor came to my mother. Uh, I don't know who the doctor was, who's but in the hospital, and he announced to her, there's a problem with the baby. She has dwarfism. So immediately constructing it in that way as a problem, a problem. 
just immediately sets it in uh, a certain type of framework. And the bottom line is, although there can be um, uh, complications with the condition, uh, in many ways we, we can do absolutely everything that the average person does. Sometimes we do it slower. Obviously, we can't run the four-minute mile, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and we need things to be lowered and such like. But we can basically do everything. It's not really a problem at all. No, well, it, it's more like, as I say ad infinitum to the point of boredom to people who hear me repeat it time and time again, my dwarfism doesn't disable me. It's people's attitudes to the dwarfism that disable. Was there a moment that you can remember in your very early life becoming conscious of the fact that you were different? Oh, yes. Take me to that moment. Yes. It was more to do... I was very, very, very young. Um, And there are two instances that I clearly remember. And um, this was being at home in the lounge room. I was very young. I wasn't, I wasn't at school yet, so I was younger than five. And I was sat on the floor. There was a, a woman who was visiting. I don't know who she was. What I remember of her was a skirt and stocking legs and black shoes. <laughs> That's what I remember of her. And her saying to my mother, she'll have to have a job because nobody will want to marry her. And I I knew, even though I was very young, I knew she was talking about me. Now, I also have... And, I, and obviously, I was too young to really put all of that into place, of course. Um, But it's more the pieces coming together and being out with my mother and um, my eldest brother. And people, it was, it was, I actually, my recollection, it was coming downstairs in a, a public place and people having these young people having a reaction to me and I can remember turning around and my mother was having a go at them and again I because they were laughing at me and I knew it was me that they were so it's more the the growing awareness and you know my my parents never hid the fact that I was physically different. They never hid that. And we would, you know, Dad in particular would talk to me about it. Um, And he would say, look, you're different, you know, differently looked. And basically he would always say, now, really, it would be good if society was just always accepting and it came to you. He said, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. And I can remember him quite quite straightforwardly saying to me, you're going to have to reach out. You're going to have to do some of the hard work. Yeah. Let's go to some music now off the top, Deborah. What do we want to play to that? Oh, well, uh, let's let's start at the very beginning. One of my music was always a part of their house because having the four brothers, um, my earliest memory of music after... after um, nursery rhymes of course was the Beatles <laughs> oh, I'm sure you're yeah. not the only one. <laughs> oh, golly gosh yes and she loves you yeah 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 <laughs> she loves you yeah 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 she loves you yeah 
That was, of course, The Beatles. Uh, she Loves You, a very early classic of theirs, uh, coming on to the FBI radio today, courtesy of Deborah Keenahan. Deborah is mm. an academic, a psychologist. She's an artist uh, as well. Uh, and a lot of her work reflects on her experience of having dwarfism, and that's a lot about what we're, what we're dwelling on in our interview today. Um, this show is, uh, of course, out of the box Deborah, what pushed you into the discipline of psychology? Oh, that's an interesting story in itself. A cricket match. Okay. <laughs> psychology through cricket. Cricket through cricket. You just wanted to understand through the game? No, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I love cricket. And when I was younger as a teenager we would go up to the Sydney Cricket Ground and uh, we, would, we would watch matches. And this was back when uh, one-day cricket was just getting started and the World Series. Great controversy. Yes, yes, yes. And that we had, at my time, we had the West Indies. Remember the West Indies with Viv Richard, Clive Lloyd, uh, Michael Holding, and they were obliterating everybody, just obliterating everybody. Anyway, we came up to the uh, Sydney Cricket Ground to watch this one-day match, and there was this young family behind us, two young boys, and what who we assumed was their father. Anyway, it was the West Indies, and... Australia. And of course, as the match went on, the West Indies were obliterating Australia as they did back as they did to everybody. But what it was, the young boys, as the match went on, became more and more uh, abusive verbally. And it was really ugly. And it became racially based calling it monkeys and oh it was just ugly it really was ugly and I had little doubt that if a West Indian cricket player or a West Indian person had been anywhere near them they they probably would have been physically violent towards them and it was it was just really distressing to me and and to my um, parents also and I think the saddest thing is that the father thought it was hilarious. And I came home and I, did, I couldn't get it. I, I went, this is, this is disturbing that these people just look different. And it kind of added to the whole thing of how I was treated. And I just didn't get it. Like... All you have to do is just treat people decently. And that was the point. I went, I've got to understand this. And I went, right, I, I'm doing psychology. Did you find out the answer? <laughs> Did you manage to understand it? Well, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, I. Well, for my 
first PhD, as I said, it was in psychology, and it was on dehumanisation. And uh, looking at that dynamic that uh, basically, I, I fundamentally believe we are decent people. Um, however, we get into situations and situations uh, break down our rules of decent behaviour. And so I started looking at stuff that allowed things like genocide. And basically what I found is that uh, for people to be able to treat another person cruelly, uh, they have to stop seeing them as a moral equal. In other words, as a person worthy of respect. And the way that that all too frequently happens is if people feel like they're inadequate themselves, that they're not in a good place themselves, then it becomes a matter of they've got to have a hierarchy. In other words, they've got to feel better than other people. And so there's this uh, desire to establish a hierarchy of those who are lesser than. And um, so it's it's interesting. You, you see this dynamic occurring time and time again, and even in, in contemporary situations, unfortunately. So uh, it's a very, very complex dynamic. You know, I, I've just presented a very simple aspect to it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a complex thing. I, I, I suppose when people um, uh, look at the way race has been constructed over time, um, it's really something that had to be invented for a number of reasons over a number of centuries. Um, and I, I guess a lot of the racism that, that, like you observed and that we see today, comes from a lot of those things a bit that have been invent, you know, invented over history. I think of slavery. I think of uh, colonialism that, that that needed race to justify it. Is, mm. is there something? Uh, similar to be said about the othering of people but, with a disability or oh, even yes. with dwarfism specifically? Yes, absolutely. And that's certainly the dynamic occurring with dwarfism. How so? Well, because if you look at the history of people with dwarfism, I mean, you've got their, their display in freak shows that was in the uh, 19th century and quite often, for people with dwarfism, this is their most viable way of making a living, you know. However, um, the, the interesting thing is when you look at history, there are many people with dwarfism who actually led quite reasonably productive lives in other than freak shows and circuses and such like. And then you have the history, like, for example, in, in European royalty, like especially uh, in the Spanish pe period, when you can see this in the artworks of the time, like Velasquez, uh, who painted a series of court dwarfs, where they, they were held as almost like novelties and pets. So uh, we have that very long history, and then we've got the circuses, uh, in which uh, dwarfs were often used as clowns. And um, so there is that sad indictment of dwarfism being used as mock for mockery and entertainment um, disrespectfully. And we, we still have to fight that one. Mm. There's time to go to some more music now. I thought your choice of the church and unguarded moment might be a good yes. one for for this. Can you speak to the, speak to that song? Well, this song, unguarded moment, is one of my all time favourites. As is the church, one of my all time favourite Australian bands. And this. This song, it's, it's wonderful because I can't help but want to get up and dance to it. But when you listen to the words, um, it actually in many ways represents what I and people with 
dwarfism and difference experience on an all too regular basis. Uh, and if you listen to the, it, it talks about um, things like uh, people having cameras for eyes. Now, that is something that, oh, it's the greatest bane of our lives now, the, the phone camera. Uh, the number of times people with dwarfism will get photographed against our uh, uh, choice is unbelievable. And you go, and what are you going to do with that? And I know people who have actually been shown photographs of themselves on social media where a memes being made out of it, and all they're doing is walking down the street. Um, you know, it's... So this, this public mockery is... Uh, it, it's, it's painful and it's unnecessary. Um, but this song actually speaks to many of the issues that we experience. But uh, I actually choose it because I just really love the music. <laughs> so hard finding inspiration. I knew you'd find me crying. Tell those girls with rifles for minds. That the jokes don't make me laugh They only make me feel like dying In unguarded moments So long, long between mirages I knew you'd find me drinking Tell those men with horses for hearts That their jabs don't make me bleed They only make me feel like shrinking In unguarded moments
Some good old-fashioned Australian pub rock right there from the early 80s. It is the church and the unguarded moment. Today brought in to Out of the Box, this show and podcast by Deborah uh, Keenahan, Dr. Deborah Keenahan. Um, she is uh, an academic and a psychologist, and much of her work reflects on her uh, experiences of uh, her dwarfism. Deborah, one of the big parts of your story is your decision to have a kid. Mm. I wonder, does dwarfism add, add any more pressure to the to the already enormous stress of, of becoming a parent? Um, not, not for me. Not for me. Um, simply because, you see, uh, my daughter, Sarah, her father is average height. So I knew in that situation that the child had a 50% chance of being either average height or having dwarfism. And uh, the child having dwarfism did not bother me because, I, you know, I, I've <laughs> it's part of me. I wouldn't change it. And I would like to think that... Uh, in bringing up a child, I would like to think that I brought up that child accepting themselves um, such that they were comfortable in their own skin. And so for me, it it wasn't an issue. However, however, um, for example, if there were two people with dwarfism, they can have the situation where the child has the double dwarf gene and when that happens, the child doesn't survive. Um, yes. So that that would be a, a, a stressor that such parents would have. But in the actual act of parenting, it's really no different. Um <sighs> Having uh, a disability doesn't stop you from loving people. Doesn't stop you from loving your child. What What was happening with your mum at, at the time that you were pregnant with with your daughter? She Sarah? passed away three weeks before I had her. Three weeks before I had Sarah. Yes, she passed away. So, so she was conscious of the fact that you were going to have a child. Yes, yes, she was. She was conscious that uh because when I found out I was having Sarah, as soon as I could, I wanted to find out because I knew my mother was... Mum passed away from pancreatic cancer and she was sick and I knew mum was dying. She was terminally ill. Um, when I knew I was having Sarah, I wanted, as soon as I could, I wanted to find out the... Uh, gender of the child so I wanted to find out as much about the child as I could so that I could tell mum and so I found out she was a girl so I gave her my mum's middle name Elizabeth so it's Sarah Elizabeth and Sarah after my father's favourite aunt did you tell your mum oh yes you, so she knew that oh she knew how did she respond oh well it was quite funny because she said to me Sarah Elizabeth. She goes, Elizabeth? She goes, that's my name. I went, uh, yes. Went, and <laughs> it was, yes. She was in hospital, in the hospital, lying, and she was passing away. And she, she knew. So it, it pleased her. It, uh, yes. Um, Do you yeah. think society has changed in any way in the way it responds to dwarfism since you were growing up and since you're what then watching your daughter grow up and coming to terms with a similar thing in some areas yes has her experience been different from where you've seen it in some ways yes and in other ways no no um for example I didn't have to deal with phone cameras when I was younger. 
Sarah's had to deal with phone cameras and had to deal with them for a long time. Um, uh, Sarah's been in the situation of being stood at uh, traffic lights and a car's driven past, stopped, and how's this for ridiculous, reversed against the light and the, the, the passengers lent out and taken photographs of her. Yes, and I've been, she and I have been together when we've been photographed. And um, on that occasion, it uh, when we were together, we were photographed uh, four times in the matter of only, well, it wasn't even a couple of hours. And it got too much for her. And she... She ended up in tears and said, I, I just want to go. I want to go home. And all we wanted to do was spend an afternoon in the park. <laughs> what can we play for Sarah? What, what, what song should oh, we play Oh, what should we play for Sarah? Oh, look, I hope you don't mind. I want to play Axiom's A Little Ray of Sunshine. It's a really old song. Another, hey, another Australian band and uh, icons, really. Glenn Shorrock and, <laughs> yeah, um, but a little ray of sunshine. Father says she has to have a name Not the same as her mom's But a name just the same A little ray of sunshine Has come into the world a little ray of sunshine In the shape of a girl We'll show her the dress That she'll wear with the gold flowing hair That nature provided A little ray of sunshine has come into the world A little ray of sunshine In the shape of a girl A little ray of sunshine I wanna know If you think she looks good in the paint Her grandma has bought her Axiom and A Little Ray of Sunshine, a, a classic Australian band that I 
uh, have only just learnt about a courtesy of my guest on Out of the Box today. Uh, it was brought in by, by Deborah Keenahan. Dr. Deborah Keenahan uh, is my guest. Um, she is an academic. She's also an artist, and her work uh, reflects uh, on her experiences of dwarfism, a lot of which we are covering in today's show. Uh, Deborah, tell me, why, why did you decide to take up art? Because this is a, a, a fairly recent um, exploration of yours. Well, well um, it is and it isn't. Um, art's always been a part of my life. I've always enjoyed drawing, and I remember spending a lot of time drawing when I was very young. And my mother was able to draw, and a couple of my brothers very capable of in in that area as well. Um, I always enjoyed it. However, um, the interesting thing is the the other thing I also enjoyed was performance in the theatre, and uh, these were two possibilities that I held dear as possible careers. But back when I was. Uh, at that point in my life, it was kind of brought up in a time when you've got to get yourself a real job. And art and the theatre weren't considered real jobs. So um, consequently, I I went in the direction, the initial direction I did. But um, art was always important to me. Anyway, I got to a point, Sarah got, uh, I had Sarah and she got to a point where she was more independent and I kind of got to a point in my life where I said, I want to do something for me now and um, I was also searching for what it was I wanted to do and I had um, a friend who, who gave me this book, The Artist's Way and I read it and it. I realised art was very important to me So and a, a very great source of expression of ideas and feelings. Well, mm. One of those ideas is the disability aesthetic, which has yes. kind of become a defining thing in your work. Mm. What, what is the disability aesthetic, first off? Okay. Well, for me, how I define look at disability aesthetics is that it's much much more uh, than just looking at the visible difference of people or or even the representation of any difference at all whether it be uh, emotional or intellectual whatever and and just looking saying oh they look different or whatever no, it's, for me, the aesthetic, because aesthetics is all about feelings, how bodies and, and things make us feel or instances make us feel. So for me, the aesthetic is that point where my being in the world meets the rest of the world and how those capturing the interactions that, for me, disable me. So one of the works, one of your recent works that might show that the best is is a VR experience called Being Deborah. Mm. By way of example, how how is the disability? What, what is the I mean, what is the work, and how, how does the disability aesthetic come well, into that? Well, yes, well that work is a virtual reality piece, which um, I uh, it's a collaborative work with. Um, Volker Kugelmeister, who's a um, VR artist at UNSW, uh, along with other people, that um, basically that was capturing the joy. The advantage of virtual reality is that the person who experiences the work actually becomes me. They actually put on the oculuses and they experience the world as me. And so that piece actually goes through a series of eight vignettes which capture uh, everyday interactions that are disabling, which the average person, they just see this interaction and go, 
How is that disabling? But when they become me in, with the VR, they suddenly see how. What sort of interaction is that? Oh, well, it's interactions in the street. Uh, one that comes to mind where uh, people will bend down and pat me on the head. Um, thinking that they're, they're being nice by talking to me, but uh, treating me very childlike. Um, there will be other interactions um, such as young children who do the come up and they run up and the pointing and the constant question, look at that, look at that, look at... But it's more about the way the parents handle the situation. You can't stop children from being curious and they often come from very a very naive position but it's how the parents handle it that will influence whether or not it's a disabling interaction or not. What do we want to play for art, Deborah? What do we want to play for your, your art career? Oh, my gosh. that That is a good question. As regards my art career, okay, that's Band-Aid. Feed the world. And the reason that comes to mind as regards the art is that I think that that work is the, the most classic example of how art can reach out. And not when I'm talking art, I'm talking about any art. So we're talking music, film, visual arts can reach out, touch the general public and actually move them significantly and I think uh, the Feed the World and the resultant concert, Band-Aid concert is the most wonderful example of how the arts can make a significant difference. It's Christmas time There's no need at Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it And in our world Of plenty We can spread a smile of joy Pull your arms around the world At Christmas time
That's Feed the World. Don't they know it's Christmas from a very unique cultural moment that's that's straight from the 80s and, and the famous Band-Aid uh, concert, uh, Band-Aid charity concert. We had Boy George in there, Bob Geldof, Sting, about 20 other uh, different singers. Um, catch that one on YouTube. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty wonderful classic. Bono from U2. Uh, Bono was there, of course. Mm. That's uh, the voice of Deborah Keenahan. She is uh, my guest uh, on Out of the Box today. She's an academic and an artist, and um, a lot of her work reflects on her experiences of, of, of her dwarfism. Deborah, uh, we've spoken a little bit about race today and race as it relates to disability and difference. And um, I suppose a lot has changed over the last 100 years in the way that society uh, responds to and talks about race. Um, uh, a lot of that is to do with a whole bunch of high, very high-profile movements. I wonder if the, the the same can be said of disability, because certainly the the movements can't haven't been as hope, as high-profile as they have. Does that mean that things haven't changed or things are changing differently or more slowly? Well, I I think things are changing. They are changing more slowly. And the the thing is disability is an interesting uh, social group because it is the one, shall we say, vulnerable groups, like you have race, gender... Um, disability, but it's the one vulnerable group that cuts across all vulnerable groups. And I often say to my students in class, when we, we start talking about human rights and disability, and I say to them, I hope all of you, all of you eventually experience disability. And you can see they're shocked. They're shocked. And I would say to them, why do you think I say this? And they go, oh, because you want us to know what it's like, because you want us to understand. You want us to get, no, I no, no, no. I go, because at the very least, it means you've lived a long life. Because with age comes disability. And as our population is having a longer lifespan, then disability is something that basically everybody will eventually experience if they live long enough, or they will at least have members of their family who will experience it, um, you know, that uh, if they live long enough. So consequently, it is actually something that uh, is relevant to everyone. But in some ways, because it's so deemed such a negative, that I think it, it has that fear factor involved, especially if you consider that we live in a world that, that values appearances, puts a lot of emphasis on physical appearance. And so there's a fear around ageing and a fear around looking physically different. And, um, you know, so I think that can be part of why there is this uh, resistance to accepting and making changes in that way. Where do you think change comes from then? Well, there's two, two ways, and it really needs to occur simultaneously for it to have a real momentum. And one is the grassroots level, obviously, you know, from the people in the street or from, you know, it people being willing to be active and to agitate and to, and to make their voices heard, but also leadership. Leadership is important. Um, and if we have leaders either in the community or, or as politicians in um, who for them how they present on issues becomes important and if they put uh, a priority 
on these issues, well, then that's that's where it will go. That's where change will will be. But sometimes it comes from the grassroots making it important for those leaders to prioritise those issues. Dr Deborah Keenahan, what can we play to finish this episode of Out of the Box? Oh, help. Okay, you know what I think? This is a little bit, some people would say cliche, but I'd love to play John Lennon's Imagine because uh, the sentiment in that song, that whole notion of acceptance is um, uh, essential. It's part of everything I do and um, I've actually, this sounds a little morose, but I have said, we started at the beginning, let's go to the end. Um, I have said that this is a song I would like played at my funeral because it epitomises how I've, I've tried to live my life. So, John Lennon's Imagine. Well, with that, as with every week, an enormous thank you uh, to my producers, Bree Jones, who did an enormous amount of work on, on this program, uh, and, of course, uh, Rebecca Merrick as well. Um, Deborah Keenan, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Oh, thank you, Joey, and thank you, FBI. This is wonderful. podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.